I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Swifties at the Movies edition. It's Wednesday, October 18th, 2023. On today's show, Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, came to theaters and it really conquered them this past weekend at the BO. It's already the highest grossing concert doc of all time. We discussed the unstoppable juggernaut known as Tay Tay or whatever you want to call her. And then the documentary Beckham tells the story of the rise to superstardom of David Beckham, the footballer. It's a very candid and intimate portrait of him and his ultra-famous wife, Victoria Adams, a.k.a. Posh Spice. It's directed by Fisher Stevens, who is anybody? Who is Fisher Stevens? Well, I mean, everybody's going to say he's Hugo on Succession. Yeah, he's one of these faces that achieves sort of anonymous ubiquity. And then all of a sudden, that role in Succession is Hugo, the slimy, you know, courtier publicist... uh, was just amazing. And now he's made this kind of great four-part documentary, Beckham. And finally, has progress in the arts come to a halt? We discuss a brilliant, really, I think, really provocative essay by the Times critic Jason Farrago. But uh, first, joining me today is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, who's the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Greetings. Shall we make a show? We got some like pretty juicy meat on the bone here. Yeah. I mean, the headline is we made Steve see the era store. So <laughs> let's, let's uh, get into it. I was hoping that lead could stay buried forever, Julia, but uh, here we go. All right. Taylor Swift, the era store IRL in real life, the bricks and mortar version of it broke all kinds of concert records, you know, an arena tour going all over, setting off mini earthquakes, uh, literal and figurative, wherever it went. It's now, of course, a three-hour concert film filmed over three nights in L.A. Uh, Which night were you at, Julia? I was at the very last night, night six. I was not at one of the nights that was uh, taped. Oh, I kept looking for you. And then I had to do something to pass the time. Anyway, it's the concert is segmented by eras in her musical biography. As I understand it, they're not entirely chronological, but sort of chronological-ish from country pop phase as a teen, sensation up through red, 1989, folklore, on and on. Uh, Why don't we just listen to a clip from the trailer? Uh, Let's play that. Welcome to the Eras Tour. This has been the most extraordinary experience of my entire life. to go on a little adventure together and that adventure is going to span 17 years of music how does that sound welcome to the acoustic setting so dana i'm going to start in the least in some ways expected place of all um this is a movie. You're a film critic. We all just saw Stop Making Sense and discussed it. Um, is it possible to even judge it as a concert film, much less a film? I'm curious what you think of that. I guess my main response to this movie was that though it is unbelievably long, as a concert movie should be, I mean, it's trying to capture the evening. I think a few songs that she sang were actually cut out for, for running time reasons. Uh, for this non super fan, somebody who maybe knows 30% of Taylor Swift's music and has a vague feeling of sort of abiding affection for her and a a few songs that I love to sing along with, but no real relationship to her as a fan. uh, This kind of converted me. (laughs) Like she is a really charming performer to watch. Of course, this is sort of cannily edited across several nights so as to bring out the best moments of performance. It's also, I noticed- Stop making sense. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is, I think, the way to make a concert doc. It's it's also, I think, cannily framed and edited so as to bring out what is the best in her as a performer and and camouflage some of her weaker spots as a performer, like her dancing, which is always, you know, criticized, I think, in a somewhat unfair way, comparing her to, you know, people who are spectacular born movers and dancers like Beyonce. I This is a whole different conversation, but I think the idea that every 
female pop star has to be an extraordinary dancer is is unrealistic and cruel and a little bit misogynistic and that men don't get asked for the same things. Anyway, I'm going all over the place, but I will say that I had a very fun time. And I think that, for example, if you're a parent who's feeling like, oh, God, I have to go to this with my tween, I think you should embrace it and try to have fun and get into her music. I know that it made me want to explore some albums uh, that I don't really know that well. Mm. All right, Julia, well, that sets up the you know pivot to you, which is you did see it. How different are the two experiences? Well, it's an hour shorter, if you can believe oh that. My God. So you're welcome. I mean, it, I don't know that I've had a similar experience of watching a filmed version of a thing I've seen live. It was interesting. I mean, I was struck by the degree to which it wasn't doing anything other than capturing this tour. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was not about how humans unite to make music in the way that Stop Making Sense was. I walked out, I saw it with my son, and I walked out and was like, well, Stop Making Sense is a much better movie. And he was outraged and shocked and horrified by that view. But I stand by it. Um, you know, but the performance itself and the tour is worth recording for what for the phenomenon that it is and for what it does demonstrate about her skill as a songwriter, her skill as a performer, um, her skill in designing her output so that it puts her in a good light. Like I was also struck by the choreography uh, at the show and in the film. She, I've seen her twice in tour before the RS tour. And I think she's like grown as, as people do when they mature to more peace with what kind of dancer she is. And I feel like the dancing this requires of her is smart. I also feel like most of the movie, she just does this like loping strut in time to the beat. Like I just kind of want to walk like that forever. It's just this like long legged, like beat lope. But Dana, I, one thing I feel like struck me at the show and again at the film is the degree to which she performs with her, face like she's a, she's I've, I'm curious what you make of this but I had this moment thinking about her a couple weeks ago where I was like oh maybe she's like a silent film person like there's mm. this kind of sense of of a emotive pantomime and she's obviously very broad like I think one of the essays we read about this noted how sometimes in her dancing she's literally like holding the fake phone to her ear which is probably an insult to silent film performers <laughs> <laughs> to suggest that that's really what she's doing but i I do think there's kind of a um, – she dances with her face, mostly. Yeah, she's funny. I mean, that was something that really struck me in her use of her face, which is probably comes across better, right, in a, in a movie than it would have on stage. Although it looks like in this particular staging, there were two giant screens that were often showing her face. So people did get to see those little, you know, um, pantomime expressions you mentioned. But – she has an emotional connection with the audience that's really, really palpable and uh, that is also has a, a bit of, of humor about it, like this thing that she would do. I mean, there must be, what, 20,000 or more people in that auditorium. And and she does this thing at one point where she sort of um, slowly pivots around the stage, pointing at the whole audience, and, and the wave of applause kind of moves with her point. So she's basically communicating with each person, like, this is about you. She'll often do that in songs as well, on the word you. She'll point to some random person in the audience, which given... Taylor's reputation for having lots and lots of boyfriends was kind of funny. Like, what if they're all literally people that she's gotten together with out there in the audience? But anyway, I found her super charming. And something that you only slightly mentioned, Julia, but that's one of my favorite things about this this concert is the costumes. The costumes are incredible and the costume changes are incredible. And I know that's a big part of seeing a pop star now, but I don't usually go to these shows. I don't think I've, I've seen in the modern era, the 21st century, a huge pop star stadium show. So, you know, the idea that there's just a new costume for practically every song or at least every set and that sometimes she changes into a new costume behind, you know, a giant pile of umbrellas that the, that the core of dancers puts over her. Just like all those funny, magical costume changes were wonderful. So whoever designed all of these glorious, you know, princess costumes and elf costumes and all the different characters she moves through, kudos to them. All right, Steve, you're over there like belching like Etna. You've you've offered several dyspeptic grunts already. What's going on? How'd oh, no, it go there's for no, you? No, there's no dyspepsia at all. I'm a totally, <laughs> totally at peace with myself. I am the I am the Gautama right now, in fact. Um, <laughs> but but the probably mispronounced that. But um, 
So a couple things. One, I love the idea that she dances with her face. And, and I think Dana's right. That's an artifact of the Jumbotron. I mean, you know, the scale of it is practically impossible to describe. I mean, it's sort of like she hosts the Super Bowl night after night after night on this tour. I mean, the, the sheer amount of energy in all senses, like fossil fuel extraction down to just her stamina as a performer is in front of you the entire time. Right. I, you know, as a performer, as a dancer, I actually weirdly kind of, you know, as someone sort of held hostage to her image for three hours, I, I like the way she moves on the stage. You, you have to, it's almost as a dancer, especially she's still a little girl in her room. Right. So that connection that she makes with the audience in the theater that I saw it at, which was largely full on a Sunday afternoon, is just incredibly real. Like there's nothing to gainsay about it, really. I mean, that I mean, to gainsay it or to somehow poo-poo it is to be like a person I do not want to be. Like, that's a role I do not want to play. That was an amazing thing to be present for. And I think as a songwriter, and perhaps this just is inevitably patronizing, she just strikes me as still a tween or teen in her room waiting for a boy to call. Like, I, I, I think some of the best songs are tremendous pop songs. And when you get to what I think of her as her best most fertile period which is i would say like red in 1989 were both records that did have tracks that landed with me as like pop masterpieces really and they are just they're fucking bangers those song right they belong like on a stereo in a kid's room and in an arena they're arena show bangers uh they're hooky um she was born to sing them, no one else could do it. Um, and that that part's extraordinary. You know, it's what I will say is that I don't like things that that play out at that scale. And I feel kind of flattened, if not borderline negated by them. Um, I, I, you know, it's to someone like me monotonous, but but I, I come back to it over and over and over again absolute magic of these really young girls especially right it was up through it was all ages right but like three four five year old girls they had to stand up with their moms and in the aisles and in the rows it just didn't matter and dance with their moms i mean again to say to gain say that is to be a fucking kind of monster like that that person is the delivery system for that like, who the fuck would I be to ever say that's anything but kind of amazing? Yeah, it's interesting about the waiting for the boy piece of it, Steve, because I actually think part of what's so interesting and resonant about her work for so many women and girls of so many ages and and fans of all genders is actually that it's very rarely actually mm-hmm. about the boy. Like, the the songs are quite conscious of the limitations of that. And Taffy uh, Brodus Arachner wrote a piece about going to the show that is not, she did not get access to Taylor and it is not the most interesting critical essay I've read about Taylor, but she does make the point. She tells the story of someone who is there to see Taylor and gets proposed to and sort of the tension of like this doofus boyfriend being like perfect (laughs) on the night she's been waiting for I'll make it about me and us about instead me, of yeah. about her relationship with Taylor and sort of the 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 role that your romantic yearnings and unions t- make in your life versus everything else and and the and the piece does kind of go into how many of the songs are about female friendship or business revenge or you know like her her whole kind of evolution in thinking through her you know pain as a public figure I mean it's it's interesting Characterologically, there are a lot of resonances between Taylor and and David Beckham, who we'll talk about in a moment. But yeah, I, I mean, I will say I came away from the show just really impressed by her as a songwriter. And I, I get it if the songs don't do it for you. But there's a, you know, I, I don't think I would say this is my fa- favorite Taylor Swift song, but the high point of the show for me, both live and uh, in the dock, is is 22 from Red which is the song where she starts to be more outside of her experience, I think. Like, that's the song about what it's like to be 22 that she basically wrote when she was 22 about 
looking back on being 22, like her ability to be outside of her experience at the same time that she's living it and articulated to all of us, I think is truly astounding. The thing that watching her reminded me of was going to see Paul McCartney. I think I said this when I came back from the show and you were you were joking that you don't like his work either, Steve, but like she's just done a lot for a person mm-hmm. who's 33. Yeah. It's pretty fucking amazing. The very last thing I wanted to say about this, if we have one more minute, is just about its performance as a movie in theaters. You know, she used a somewhat unusual method of contracting directly with the AMC theater chain rather than going through a movie studio, which Beyonce is also going to do with her concert doc release later on this year. And, you know, that was hailed as something that, you know, I don't think it's unique to Taylor or she's the only person to have done it, but it was a smart move for her both in terms of marketing her own documentary and also in, in revivifying the movie theater. I think um, like the Barbenheimer weekend where everybody was so shocked that people were dressing up and going to the movies and making it an event. I think this is going to be kind of one of the, the cinematic milestones in terms of popular reception of something in, in 2023. So I am all for that. And I do hope that people will go see this in the theater if they have any interest in her or her music, both because I think they'll have a good experience and because I want movie theaters to live. Mm. All right. On that note, Taylor Swift, the era's tour, it's in movie theaters now. All right. Check it out. All right. Let's move on. All right. Before we go any further, this is typically in the show where we discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have? Steve, our only business this week is to tell listeners about our Slate Plus segment. This week, at Julia's suggestion, we're talking about a really interesting article from The Atlantic with the wonderful title, Your Sweaters Are Garbage. It's by the fashion writer Amanda Mole. I think we've talked about her work before. This one is all about the degradation of the quality of sweaters over the years. Her piece argues that the sweaters available today for purchase are no longer as fluffy or as soft or as long-lasting and well-constructed as they used to be. So we will talk about sweater culture and our own sweaters, whether this piece by Amanda mole rings true for us if you're a slate plus member please stay tuned for that segment at the end of this show and if you're not a slate plus member what should you do you should sign up right now at slate.com slash culture plus in exchange for being a member you get ad-free podcasts you get bonus content like the segment i just described and you get unlimited access to all of the great writing and podcasting on slate.com when you're a member you are supporting us our work and the work of all our beloved colleagues These memberships are what keep Slate going. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, on with the show. Okay, David Beckham grew up living and breathing football, what we in this country parochially call soccer. He was a working class lad who for all his brilliance on the pitch was otherwise very shy, very modest kid, almost almost sort of asocialized, spent his time in his backyard with his dad on a soccer ball or sometimes for hours on end, just a soccer ball. At a painfully young age, his life and career got taken over by Man U, Manchester United, one of the iconic English football clubs. Uh, And he went on to become a transcendentally gifted player for them. Now, a new Netflix documentary tells this story with a special emphasis on his relationship with Victoria Adams, a.k.a. Posh Spice. The story is just filled with so much big canvas sports and celebrity world drama. It's, it's sort of a wonderful surprise to watch it. It's a candid and, in my opinion, somewhat moving portrait of a life filled with pathos and heartbreak. At the end of the day also filled with contentment and wisdom. It's directed by Fisher Stevens, who, as we said, is probably known to our audience as Hugo on Succession. In the clip, you'll hear the voices of Victoria and David Beckham. They're talking about the early days of their relationship. You will also hear the voice of David's former teammate, Gary Neville. Let's start with Victoria. My manager kept saying, try and keep it under wraps. Don't get photographed together. So we would <laughs> we would meet in car parks and that's not as seedy as it sounds. The first kiss that I ever had with Victoria was in the BMW in a car park. Classy. <laughs> the truth is, he was on the phone to Victoria every second and he would stay on the phone until one o'clock in the morning. He was in the bathroom with the light on all night speaking to her. I'm like... What the fuck are you speaking to her about? What would you say? Well, just, I don't know. I think, uh, have you never done that, though? Early on in the relationship? No. 
Julia, let me start with you. I have to confess, I, I knew very little, I mean, the barest bones of that about this story, of course, know who they are. Um, but um, his career as a footballer and how it related to his personal life and his upbringing, this was totally terra incognita for me. I found it fascinating. I'm really curious to know um, how it felt for you to watch. Is it embarrassing if I come in two weeks in a row and say that I love the documentary about the major celebrity that the major celebrity had some hand in <laughs> causing to exist? I, I'm right, I thought this right was behind you. So right behind you. good. I don't yeah. mean to be a chump, but I think that this is a really excellent documentary for a few reasons. One, I'm impressed with the way that Fisher Stevens, the director, puts it all together. Um, I, I would say one of my main takeaways is I came away from this con wishing I could be friends with Fisher Stevens, like just the sensibility that pervades. There's sort of a wryness. There's a subtle, understated eye for the joke or the revealing moment that that he lets kind of hang and lets us look at and lets us come to our own conclusions about. There's great use of music throughout, sort of varied, surprising, interesting mix of needle drops and uh, and other types of music, although no Spice Girls songs that I've heard through three and a half hours. I didn't watch that second half of the fourth one. I was super impressed. There's also a really interesting technique, whereas the film interviews Beckham and other soccer greats of his era, it uses the the almost the Errol Morris style. They're looking straight at the camera, but as they watch their younger selves on screen, again, without quite saying that that's what it's doing, it's delivered in an understated way, but you get to watch these men appreciate or agonize at the performances of their younger selves. And it's really moving and beautiful in terms of thinking about how athletes perceive their own excellence and their own failures. And it's just humane. It's just really humane. It's humane about... Um, Beckham's upbringing. It's humane about his tough dad. It's humane about his relationship with his uh, coach at Manchester United. And it's humane about his relationship with Posh, with Victoria Beckham, who, you know, comes out as sort of a complicated, interesting, prickly person without being villainized or uh, demonized. It, it has a lot of respect for their marriage and for them both as people. I just loved it. I really loved it. Yeah, here, here. I'm totally with you. Dana, what about you? I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to like it based on something that I, my, the most negative thing I will say about it will sound very familiar because I said it about the supermodels last week. I think it is too long and I don't understand why it's divided into the four segments that it is. And there's a part of me that distrusts that Netflix always does this. <laughs> so this is less about Fisher Stevens, who I agree does an, an artful job framing this story and, and getting some really intimate interviews with a pretty closed off person. David Beckham is not a big confessional guy, but he has some pretty revealing moments with Fisher Stevens, and that is great. Uh, the use of archival footage, I agree. The use of 90s music is great. I learned a lot about it because I knew nothing about about this story before. But there's But there's this side of me that just feels like Netflix always has to squeeze the maximum number of views out of something and puff it up into content. And it makes me feel that this is not made according to the dictates of the story itself or even necessarily what the creators wanted to do as much as it has to fit that format of, of being four different hours long. So, for example, there's just strange pivots where we've talked about his childhood. His parents appear quite a lot. And uh, and there's a lot about his relationship with them, which is interestingly loving and yet, I think, ambivalent in some ways. And then his father drove him really, really hard as a kind of dad coach. Um, but there's the there'll be these pivots to his childhood that will happen like 40 minutes into episode two after we've already gotten probably through the first, I don't know, five years of his soccer career. And he's in his early 20s and kind of the main story. We suddenly go back again to watching him score goals as a soccer star in middle school. I just didn't understand the way it was constructed, and that made it feel a little bit long and, and sloggy to me in parts. Hmm. I, I wonder if, because I didn't find it too long at all. I, I, I thought it was the right length. Um, so as a sports documentary, I just think its beats are, are perfectly distributed, and the climax is coming together with why they were significant significant and i don't think that's hype he fucked up huge in the world cup as a exceedingly young man painfully young man i'm still in his teens i believe you know um and the entire country of england turned on him at once and in fact 
hurled like the vilest insults to his face and his parents' face. I mean, it was just to the extent that it then turned into a redemption story is in and of itself very powerful. What makes it work on a much larger canvas to me is that it's very much about the moment that he becomes super famous and takes it to another level because he marries that particular person is exactly the moment that sports goes from being popular to being mega. It goes from being driven by, like, for example, that's the exact same era that Michael Jordan wins his championships in in America and takes that sport to a completely different level. Um, And star players go from stars to superstars in some sense. And that it happens in England because of Beckham more than any single figure at exactly the moment that he has to come face to face with how tiny his life has been and how protected it's been and how limited to the pitch it's been by meeting this person that he falls in love with and then having that relationship taken up by this new global mega marketing machine. That I thought was very sensitively handled because you have their cooperation and because they were intent, given their own backgrounds and who they are, they were intent to live life actually at a relatively human scale. I mean, they became insanely affluent and famous. And yet, I think, Julia, part of what's so moving about it is that that they're, they, they appear, at least from the documentary, to be really quite grounded and thoughtful people. This guy seems to want to keep bees and like tidy up his kitchen after they make dinner at night. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of weirdly, weirdly powerful. Yeah. I will also say that I watched it with the perfect level of soccer ignorance. Like I watched it again with my son who, you know, knows the outcomes of all of these games because he's just been, he's a total child of the 2020s and is a soccer nut who runs around in a Liverpool jersey, like talking to, you know, middle-aged men about like Liverpool games from the 90s and who dreams of going to (laughs) Liverpool for I don't even really know how he became a Liverpool fan. Like anyway, so it was, it's just, if you are like not a soccer aficionado it's so full of suspense too because you're like and and the the doc is canny about not signaling too much whether it's tipping that this was a stressful time on the field because they're about to lose the big game or it's a stressful time on the field because they're going to blow the first half but then turn it all around in the second like it's just i don't know strongly recommend a certain level of american soccer ignorance going in yeah, actually, that is one thing that I will say that it, the documentary does really well for a non-soccer fan and a non-sports person like me is that it frames why individual games are important. And I guess that that's a place where the running time goes to the, the show's advantage, right? Like, it's got so much space to spare that we can set up, well, why is this particular kick in the World Cup so important? Or why is this qualifying game, you know, in the in the whatever <laughs> local England league, I'm going to have the wrong language for it, why that matters for the team, for his career, for soccer history. It has time to set all those things up. So instead of just sort of decontextualizing and saying, oh, he's good. Here he is doing another good kick. Um, we sort of <laughs> see exactly what's at stake in that moment. That's funny. I mean, I, I just, I think, Julia, I think maybe what you and I are both really responding to in addition to just the suspense of it is like the supermodel documentary, there's this totally jarring but exhilarating experience of a too young person suddenly going mega at a scale that was actually unprecedented. So there's not even some sense of, oh, you know, no one can really take a supermodel aside and say, here, here, this is how it's done, because they didn't exist. And there had never been a Beckham or a Michael Jordan before, because the, the sheer marketing muscle and sophistication of the publicity machine really wasn't fully developed until roughly 1990. And then they take it someplace new in that decade. And, and it's something about this sort of midlife retrospective where they have extracted a very, very, for better and for worse, you know, a very human existence from this inhuman scale that I think is is so incredibly moving about it. It it strains my like every fiber as a journalist to say, hey, actually these docs where the subject has a substantial say in you know what it is that is released are good. <laughs> like it is anathema, right? But I think 
part of what these two projects show is that if you are a very savvy public person in the world, you know that you can't release a doc about yourself that is so, uh, you know, kind of airbrushed and featureless. Like that will be a, a worse PR nightmare for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? To skip things entirely. Um, and, you know, I, I did feel like Fisher Stevens quailed in some sense when talking about the affair that Beckham allegedly had when he was first with Real Madrid. And like, it's quite clear in both of their faces that he did have the affair and that it was very difficult, I think. Um, but he doesn't quite ask it directly. He sort of lets the the awkwardness and the sort of differentness of Beckham's mean in that moment say what needs to be said is maybe too subtle for some, but that was one big critique people had of the doc was that it kind of let them dodge that question. And I'm curious whether you guys thought it did or did not. Yeah, I saw that critique uh, that someone published that the idea that Fisher Stevens should have pressed harder and asked that question. I think it's it, it did not seem to me like a moment of, of puffery and access journalism and that something was being avoided in order to sit down with Beckham. It seemed more like a kind of coded exchange where Fisher Stevens realized that because Beckham is a private person and did not want to get into the, the nitty gritty details that the most he was going to get was that sort of, you know, uncomfortably downcast moment where both of them acknowledged that it was something difficult. And I respected something that Beckham said at the end of a sort of stammering response to one of Fisher Stevens' indirect questions about it, where he said, in the end, it's our private life. And uh, that I, I can completely respect that. I think it's it's close enough to say, you know, this was a terrible time and it was many years ago and we got through it and everybody can take away from that what they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, it's Beckham. It's on Netflix. Hearty thumbs up from me and Julia, rather wavering one from Dana, but um, check it out. Love to hear what you think about it. Let's move on. Okay, well, Jason Farrago is a uh, critic at large and art critic for the New York Times. He's written an essay for them called Why Culture Has Come to a Standstill. Uh, it's uh, kind of an amazing essay with lots of ins and outs. Let me quote a couple bits of it to get us going. For 160 years, we spoke about culture as something active, something with velocity, something in continuous forward motion. What happens to a culture when it loses that philosophy, even slows to a halt? We are now almost a quarter of the way through what looks likely to go down in history as the least innovative, least transformative, least pioneering century for culture since the invention of the printing press. Julia, I know you hate declinist arguments. I'd be very curious to know whether you found this one subtle and yet edifying or just um, more of the same. What do you think? I really wished I could have edited this before it was published. <laughs> Is that the worst and most condescending answer of all? I This essay did infuriate me, but not because it's not smart in some ways. It just is structurally circular and argumentatively somewhat devious. And I feel like there's a better version of it that is neither of those things. And, you know, es essentially, structurally, what the essay does is say, modernity, we always believed in progress and discovering the new, not much interrogation of who the we is there. Uh, and then it says like, and now it, it slowed down, and there's not that much that's interesting anymore. Then it says, of course, you can always say, what about X? What about Y? And, if, and I have my own things I like, but nothing good has happened, which that's the part that's devious as an argument. If you're like saying what about X and what about Y is an ineffective rhetorical rebuttal to my argument that nothing interesting has happened in culture, you kind of knock the knees out under your potential interlocutor in an unfair manner, I think. Then it's extremely hand wavy about the idea that perhaps one of the innovations of this century is that we are letting other people tell their stories. It's like, yeah, 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 that's just becoming a tag on Netflix. Um, how reductive, how stupid, that doesn't count. Which, what? again, who who is the we that believes in modernity? Um, and then it's like, you know what, actually modernity is itself just a modern construct. And for many, many years, people have just been remixing the past. We're not necessarily trying to do anything new. Um, so he comes around at the end to like, ah, the construct I set up at the beginning is kind of a, you know, never mind. 
Uh, art can be beautiful. Doesn't have to have forward motion. So he arrives at the place where he no longer fears the thing he articulated at the beginning, which is kind of a classic straw man structure. I, yeah, I didn't like it. Yeah. Hey, you totally misread it, though. He doesn't say nothing interesting is happening. In fact, he makes a very careful argument where he says, "This." he sets up right from the beginning, as I read it, that this was always a construct of culture highly specific to this turning point, which he locates with Manet, which is pretty standard way of telling art history. And it's about how a narrative about culture in general was shaped and how works were produced within that overarching narrative, giving them this kind of larger storyline that it that appears to have sort of petered out in the in the starting in the 1970s. It's a totally historically situated argument. It's non-normative in the extreme. He's at pains to do that. He strikes me as utterly sincere that diversific that, that story featured overwhelmingly white European men. Um or Euro-adjacent men uh, at the center of it, that it's a great thing that it diversified. And then he just reiterates, really doubles down on what I think the basic thing is, because the, the essay is a question. The, the question is, what has been lost? Is anything lost? I don't know that he necessarily thinks it is lost. And at the end, he's like, it's all, it's fine. There's just, it's a totally different paradigm for the creation of culture, and we'll all live happily within it. I thought it was very thoughtful and reflective Dana. I had to interject. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm glad you came to its defense, Steve, because first of all, let me say that I think Jason Farrago is a great addition to the Times. Yes. I think he's a fairly recent addition. He's he's a critic who I'm always interested to read. When we almost talked about but did not talk about that Hannah Gasby show at the Brooklyn Museum, that Picasso show that she curated that was supposed to be so terrible, one of the reasons that I didn't want to talk about it is Jason Farrago had already destroyed it so definitively <laughs> in the New York Times that there was nothing more to say. And I do recommend people read that. It's just a great example of a pan, whether or not you even care about the subject matter. Um, this essay struck me as it's almost like maybe he should write a book. You know, I think like Julia, I kind of approached it a bit as an editor, although I have never been a professional editor. A part of me wanted to say, Jason, you've got too much going on here. You have to. This is like a thesis's worth of ideas crammed into a few thousand words. And you need to winnow down what you're actually saying here, because among other things, right, he's talking about every art form at once. Like he starts off making this point about Manet and Degas and this painting exhibition that's at the Metropolitan Museum right now, right? Specifically, as you said, Stephen, the modernity of Manet's painting. And then he ends saying, and in conclusion, Amy Winehouse is the one <laughs> innovative artist. I mean, I'm, I'm being hyperbolic. He does not say she's the one innovative, innovative artist. But he ends on an Amy Winehouse quote, and I'm talking about Back in Black, her album from 2006, as this kind of one of the exceptions to this rule that he's making that there isn't anything new. And for one thing, it just sort of seemed like, you know, painting and pop music are two very different places to begin and end your spectrum. But secondly, who was Amy Winehouse if not a recombiner of everything, right? I mean, she was this sort of neo-soul, beehive hairdo, which I know he talks about. I guess I just don't understand how we ended up on Amy, much as I love Amy Winehouse and that album. There was a lot of cramming and eliding going on to, to jam all of these art forms into this essay. But wait a second, again, it's like, did you guys read this? He says that Winehouse prefigured that album, prefigured a culture of the eternal present, a digitally informed sense of placenesses and atemporality. She's the perfect example and harbinger of the trend, not the, you know, one bucking it. I, I thought the well, essay was... Well, then maybe was... that's the straw man ending that Julia was talking about. I guess to me there was just Fair a lack enough. of... There I mean... was a lack of clarity there because it sort of seemed like you yourself are saying that she's this recombiner as are, you know, rappers and, and anybody who's sampling things from culture to bring together... I mean, what's sort of a postmodern, right? We could broadly say like not modernist but postmodernist kind of mm-hmm. aesthetic, right? Yeah. So she embodies that but yet she is what's carrying art forward into the 21st century. So does she represent then, if it's not a declinist argument, as you say, then then she represents our affirming the fact and satisfaction and contentment with the idea that the future of art is just to recombine? Is that right, what he's saying at the end? Yeah, I think so. I think that it may it may have been tied to like, the rise of a fossil fuel economy. I mean, he all but says this. He says that there was an explosion of modernity itself as an entirely new way of existing in relation to 
technology and nature thanks to what we were just we were able to create a total artificial life world that basically replaced nature and was endlessly innovative because it was technologically innovative so that the world you lived in in five or ten years was substantially different from the one you'd lived in the previous five or ten years and art was going to have to account for this unbelievably like just unrelenting forward temporal thrust by itself becoming sort of avant-garde essentially effectively by definition and that was one moment and now we live so totally within this life world right it is so enveloped us that it doesn't have quite the same progressive thrust and to the extent that it does it's dark right it's black mirror in some sense right that that we're at home in dislocation in a way that doesn't require a kind of gigantic compensatory narrative of some kind from which to derive meaning. Nonetheless, you're highly likely to have been educated in that. I mean, if I mean, you couldn't be an art critic without saying there came Manet. Then there were, you know, there were the Impressionists, the Post-Impressionists, the Fauvists, the Cubists, Pop, uh, Minimalism. Right? It was just that narrative. If you don't know it, you can't possibly go to an art museum and write intelligently about what you see, even if you understand that it was racist and, uh, uh, and misogynistic in some essential way. Um, so uh, to me, Julia, it just doesn't seem to me to valorize this lost thing to say it was once this way. It's disorienting for some of us to have lost it. I guess I just, that's why I wish that it could have gone through a few more rounds because I'm much more interested in it as a personal loss. And I think there's a, I mean, there's an admirable ambition here of being, of setting yourself up as a critic at large, of being someone who's like, I have surveyed the 21st century from plays to to Ukrainian electronic music to et cetera. And I have found three works that are worthy of your consideration. And, <laughs> and don't and don't bring me don't bring me your no buts. You know, like he he's he's trying to write this on a plane of culture as a universal and a constant. He's trying to have it both ways. Like he's trying to write it in the mode in which the like whole modern idea of art as progress. Like he's trying to write from both within and without that construct. Right. So he's trying to write in this glacial plane of like, this is what culture is. Right. Um, And then where he lands is like, oh, maybe the whole frame was wrong. But like for many of us, the whole frame, I don't, not even was wrong, not even was wrong. The whole frame was itself a frame. It wasn't an absolute. It wasn't the abstract. It wasn't universal. And in fact, there have been many other ways to think about art for centuries. And here we are at the dawn of a new century playing with culture in different ways because of new technologies. And it's going to mix up the narrative. Like, that's all true. And I agree, it's sincere. And I do think he's a great critic. And I like, thank God there's a critic at the New York Times who's <laughs> conversant in Ukrainian pop and the whole of 21st century theater. But I think because he's writing it on this Olympian plane, rather than like one man's personal struggle with the framework I was taught and how it doesn't seem to apply to the moment and what that's making me think and realize about the history of art. Like he goes back to Chinese painting, which again is a classic, like, ah, what if you don't just think the West invented everything uh, frame shift, right? But it's also not like narratively a surprising move. And the piece really is dismissive about some of what for me have been the most powerful cultural experiences of the 21st century. Like, you know, our museums, studios, and publishing houses can bring nothing new to market except the very people they once systematically excluded. If resisting such market essentialism was once a primordial task of the artist, uh, today identities keeping diminished brutally into a series of searchable tags. That's not wrong exactly, but it's very dismissive of, for example, what Dana and I felt in um, that movie theater in Australia where we saw the Wonder Woman movie. Like, yeah, that's commercial. And yeah, the Wonder Woman movie is not Amy Winehouse or, it, you know, probably won't be a museum in a thousand years. But that was really different. It felt really different. It felt, felt like a change, felt like a step forward. And I think because the essay is operating within and without the kind of ideas of modernism at the same time, it's like weaker than it would be if it was a more... Um, direct personal through line. Mm. No, I agree with all that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I'm more on Julia's page probably than Steve's, but but I don't feel dismissive of this essay. I feel like it wasn't quite ready for prime time, but like Julia, I'm glad somebody is out there thinking big thoughts and trying to publish them in the Times. I will say to, to zoom in on something micro and his many macro points that he makes, a couple of things he says about movies illustrate that he doesn't really have a tremendous knowledge of even just recent cinema. And the two that I wanted to point out is that he talks about new techniques, new cinematic techniques introduced in the 21st century. And two of the examples he cites are not at all the first time that that thing was done. Like he talks about Ang Lee's movie, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, as the first film shot at 120 frames per second. The Hobbit films way preceded it by, I think, five years or so, and all used that. And then he talks about making a film on your iPhone, which Steven Soderbergh, I guess, did in, in 2018. But Sean Baker famously had done that years before with Tangerine. So in both of those cases, there's just a moment of me thinking like, but couldn't you just if you're going to if you're going to make arguments <laughs> about the first time this has been done in the 21st century, just like get on Wikipedia and make sure it's really the first time, because, you know, even in the last 10 years, there was another example of that. Well, and if you're going to pronounce in this way, yeah, you got to come correct. Yeah. All right. Well, it's Why Culture Has Come to a Standstill by Jason Farrago. It's in the October 10th uh, Times Magazine. Check it out. I'd love to hear from you guys on this. Let's move on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you have? I think I'm going to endorse something that I saw at the New York Film Festival. I've been going to tons of movies for that. It's in its last week now. And it's kind of the time of year where most of the movies at the New York Film Festival have already been at other festivals. Sometimes they've won awards at other festivals. The New York Film Festival is really more of a showcase, like here are some of the big movies (laughs) that are about to come out this fall. And so I've been glorying in those. I've seen probably three or four masterpieces in the past two weeks. It's crazy. So I'm going to endorse just the only one that I've seen that is actually opened yet. I think this is only out in limited release, but it should be in more cities soon and then come to streaming eventually. And I hope that we'll talk about it on the show at some point. It's called Anatomy of a Fall, and it's a French thriller, I guess you'd call it, sort of a murder mystery, um, but also a psychological study of a marriage. And not to spoil anything, the trailer already shows you this, but it's about... Uh, a family living in the French Alps in a sort of ski chalet type building. The father of the family falls or jumps or is pushed out of a window and dies. And the rest of the movie is about the forensic exploration of what happened, the sort of psychological repercussions of what happened on his wife and child. And and eventually it becomes this really tense courtroom drama where new information is revealed at the last minute. And it really keeps you on the edge of your seat. It's pretty extraordinary. It's a long movie, as every movie seems to be these days. Um, But I thought it was fantastic. And uh, it's definitely a disgusting kind of movie. It's something that you want to see and then go out afterwards for drinks or dinner and debate what you think happened and and how the movie framed it. Uh, So Anatomy of a Fall, it's directed by Justine Trier. And it's in a few cities right now, but keep an eye out for it as it opens wider. I mean, I think after that, there's no way for us not to discuss this movie. Uh, it's, it seems sounds like it's going to be coming to a podcast near you. It won the Palme d'Or um, at Cannes, so. and so I suspect it will also be in you know the awards conversation at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Good. You know, I'm very psyched to see it and talk about it with you guys. Uh, Julia, what do you have? I want to endorse a really great essay I read on Insider called The Great Zell Pool Scam. And I was going to endorse this anyway, and then I saw in my pod feed that I think Slate's own What Next podcast did uh, an episode about this article, um, which I haven't heard yet, but is probably also worth checking out. But it essentially uses like the form of the funny personal essay, which has some reporting, some confessional, some wry social observation, Uh, a fair amount of humor and insight to levy an attack on Zell, just a massive, uh, poorly regulated major part of our financial infrastructure at this point that, um, that has a lot of flaws that could bear some scrutiny. So it's not the classic, uh, you know, investigative piece that's extremely broccoli-ish. It's a really fun read, but it's a read that leaves you thinking we got to change the way that our financial infrastructure is changing. So again, it's The Great Zell Pool Scam by Devin Friedman on Insider. That sounds amazing. Yeah, uh, I'm really intent intent on reading that. Um, So my 
my endorsement is kind of sort of a reaction to all of the previous segments in a way that that's kind of inadvertent. I mean, it was among the most interesting things, if not the most interesting thing I read this week. It's an essay by the um, art critic Jed Pearl in the New York Review of Books, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary. And they got the A-team together and the, for this anniversary issue, and the A-team uh, brought their A-game but the Pearl essay I thought was was a really interesting tour de force. I mean, he's you know he's fairly senior now as an art critic eminence, um, and um, it's an extended and not at all slapdash comparison between the paradigm of the artist as Picasso really came to embody it for the first part, really half of the 20th century and beyond, and how eventually Warhol um, came to embody it since, and. Inadvertently, I think he doesn't go into it that much, but it is about the paradigm shift that we're talking about in relation to the Farrago essay. Um, and and also somewhat about, it weirdly relates in some weird way to the Taylor Swift movie. It's just what, and the Beckham documentary, what is there aside from publicity that the artist, when they withdraw from the public and the commercial life of a society in order to make something self-consciously new. What is what are they doing? And what why why is it that Warhol was importantly not doing that? And what do you get out of comparing the two? And it's it's I think the best broadside ever leveled at Warhol and a defense of an older notion of an artist. And again, it, one makes these arguments advisedly in this day and age. But the but to treat it as though it's no loss whatsoever I think I think pushing back the time has come to push back on that right that 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 the defensive reaction has gone too far the other way so I I just think if nothing else it's a, it's a challenge to the idea that nothing is lost and that such a figure was only as Gadsby imagines him a kind of you know totemic publicity driven libido driven monster right patriarchal monster um, and um, uh, it's highly recommended it's called Bacock. Picasso's Transformations by Jed Pearl in the November 2nd uh, issue of the New York Review. Check it out. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Bye.